0: of the many different kinds of health deficiencies from which people can suffer. And some of you, I'm sure, deal with some of this. Uh, Things like too little magnesium in your body, maybe too little calcium, vitamin A, vitamin B12. Of these, researchers tell us that the most common ailment is iron deficiency and iron deficiency. And iron deficiency, of course, can lead to anemia. Maybe you knew that. But more commonly, it results in things like just fatigue, dizziness, uh, weakened immune system. In terms of prevalence of this condition, the World Health Organization estimates that iron deficiency and anemia affect, for example, 42% of children under five in the world and 40% of pregnant women worldwide. So quite prevalent. But this morning, I would suggest to you that there is a far, far more common deficiency from which humanity suffers. One that affects 100% of children. Under five and over five. 100% of pregnant women. 100% of all women. 100% of all men. We could call that deficiency a king deficiency. A king deficiency. Listen to how the final verse of the book of Judges describes this condition. We'll put the text on the screen here for you. Judges twenty one twenty five. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me read that again. In those days there was no king in Israel, the days of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Now, notice what we learn about the writer of that statement. What can we infer here? Well, we, we understand that he isn't, the writer isn't living in those days, is he? He's talking from a point in the future, looking back and the days that the writer is living in, in which the writer is living, they do have a king in Israel. Does that make sense? He's writing from the place of of being under a king. He's talking about a day, those days when there was no king in Israel. And the kind of king that there was at the time of writing changed the what we could call moral relativism that once characterized this period of Israel's history described in Judges 21. There was no king. There was a king deficiency. And what was the result? Everyone was a king or queen unto themselves, right? Everyone called the shots. Everyone ruled from their own throne. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now when the writer writes, being under a king at a point in the future, we could ask, well, who was that king? Maybe that king was Saul. Or better still, maybe it was David. Let's hold on to this idea of a king deficiency, king deficiency in Israel, and consider one of the most one of the Bible's most important accounts about David. We have been reading about David in our Bible reading plan. If you'd like to join us in that, we have that reading plan available on the back counter as we are reading through the Old Testament this year, a survey of the Old Testament, one chapter a day, five days a week. So as we are thinking about David, the life of David, this is one of the most important accounts concerning David. In fact... This is one of the most important of any accounts in the entire Bible. It really is. Now, you might say, well, every verse in the Bible is important. Yes, in one sense, but no, not in another sense. (laughs) Right? There are pivotal, there are foundational, there are pillars in the Bible that make make themselves clear in terms of their significance and this one is one of those earth-shattering accounts. Turn over to 2 Samuel 7 if you're not there already. 2 Samuel 7. As you are, if you are there in 2 Samuel 7, if you look at the very first verse of the chapter, chapter 7 verse 1, you're going to see how the writer is establishing the context. Where are we in the story of David's life? It says this, Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So we're establishing the context, where we are in the story. The fact that David was living in his house, or his palace, we would probably call it, is mentioned here. The writer mentions that here because the subsequent subsequent verses, the ones that follow verse 1, they focus on David's desire to build a house, probably we should call it a temple, for Yahweh. Right? He's in his own home. He's built this up. He's comfortable. He's thinking, why am I sitting here when the ark of God is over in a tent? down the streets. So it, it's it's laid on his heart that something there's an imbalance here. So he, he commits himself to wanting to build a house for God, a temple for God. But as we read, leading up to our verses, our main text this morning, through the prophet Nathan, God says no to Israel's king. God says no to David. David will not build a house for God. But Nathan's message, wonderfully, does not end there. His message to David continues. Let's pick up that prophetic word from the prophet Nathan to King David in the second half of verse 11. Listen to the words of the prophet. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, and then we hear the voice of God, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before from before you, David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So let's stop there. If we think back, right? Think back to the universal condition that I described at the beginning. 100% of kids, 100% of women, 100% of men. When I use that language of Judges 21-25, I think we could say that to whatever degree we seek to do, what is right in our own eyes we are confirming that very diagnosis. We have a king deficiency. All of us have a king deficiency. But what this passage, Second Samuel 7, describes for us is how the divine physician treats that condition. So brothers and sisters, friends, this is good news. This is good news. If you acknowledge that you have a king deficiency, and we can spell that out a little bit more, if you acknowledge that, then the good news is that God knows that condition and he wants to treat that condition. He wants to bring you what you need to be healed from that condition. So let me be clear about what I'm saying. Every spiritual struggle you have, stop for a minute, do that inventory in your head. Every spiritual struggle that you have and so many of the material or outward or situational struggles that you endure, these are a direct result of your king deficiency. That's where they come from. That's how serious and how pervasive the condition is. But God's treatment is equally serious here. More than that, it is astounding when we see it and understand it. Let's sure, make sure that we understand what we just learned from 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 through 16. Now, though the passage itself doesn't use the word, take a look at these verses here. 2 Chronicles 13 5 2 Chronicles 21 7, Psalm 89 Jeremiah thirty three twenty one. 21 they, those passages, describe this promise to David, they call it a covenant. It's described routinely in the Old Testament as a covenant, God's covenant with David. So if we step back and we think about this idea of covenant, one of the most important words in the Bible, we are surely going to remember, having read through the Old Testament, and we should remember the other two major covenants that came before this one. You remember those? Yeah, there's one to Noah. We'll call, that's called the Noahic covenant. We'll just kind of set that to the side. It's a good, it's a good one. It's a good, really good one. It's kind of big and broad there though, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily pertinent to what we're talking about here. But the other two covenants that may come to your mind, I hope come to your mind, are what we call the Abrahamic covenants. God's promise to Abraham. And what we could call the Mosaic Covenant. It's also called the Sinatic Covenant. The later kind of iteration of it's called the Deuteronomistic Covenant. <laughs> you like those words? Those are cool theology words, huh? These big words. But Abrahamic and Mosaic. Abrahamic and Mosaic. So like those earlier covenants from Scripture, this Davidic Covenant is one of the most important pillars in terms of God's glorious work of redeeming you, of saving the world, of securing our eternal blessedness. This is absolutely critical. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. But again, let's make sure we understand what our main text is saying, what we just read through verses 11 through 16. Consider three things emphasized in this passage. For example, consider what we learn here about number one, David's offspring. David's offspring. The covenant is with David, but it isn't focused on what will happen to David himself or what will happen during his reign. That's not where the focus is. Notice the related terms emphasized here. Verse 11, Yahweh will make you a house, household. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring. This offspring is clearly David's son. But he will also be, verse 14, a son to God. And in verse 16, we find the term house is repeated. House, offspring, son. So what God is promising David here is focused on David's descendants rather than David himself. That's important that we understand that. We also read here about number two, David's kingdom. The passage makes it clear that God's promise to David is not simply the promise of many descendants. We've heard those kinds of promises before, right? Abraham, I will bless you. I will make you your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, as numerous as those. That's not what this is. It's not the promise of many descendants. The offspring or the house that God has in view here that he's emphasizing has to do with descendants of David who will reign as king. That's why we see repeated terms in this passage like kingdom, the word throne. Now we know David had many sons and daughters, but not all of David's sons reigned as king, right? Only Solomon truly did. We know uh, Absalom tried to do... right. Absalom tried. (laughs) He pretended he was the king. He wasn't. Only Solomon truly reigned as king. And he was... Solomon was, in fact, the one who built God's temple. So in one sense, this is who it's talking about here. Your son who will come from your own body, he will build my house. So we're focused on Solomon here as well, these descendants. So just as God indicates... In uh, verse 13, or or, or, yeah, he was in fact the one who built God's temple. Verse 13 confirms that the covenant is focused on promises relating to the kingdom of David. So offspring, kingdom. Finally, look at what we read about number three, David's reign. Number three, David's reign. Verse 12 makes it clear that David will, in fact, lie down with his fathers. What does that mean? He's going to die, right? Yeah, he's he's going to the grave. (laughs) So David will, will, at some point, lie down with his fathers. He will die. So the duration of David's reign would be limited. Specifically, he reigned for 40 years until his death at age 70. But notice what the final statement in verse 6 says uh, about, not sorry, in verse 16 says about the duration of David's throne. David's life was 70 years. What about the duration of his throne? What does it say? Your throne shall be established forever. 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 Notice what he goes on to say, verse 13. The same promise is applied to David's son, to Solomon in verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Two different thrones? Nope, same throne. Same Davidic throne, right? Established forever. And look at the last half. Both of these ideas are present in the first half of verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Can't miss that emphasis here. Forever. So let's be clear about why this covenant is so important. In the, in the, in the, in the flow or progression of the story of redemption, this is what we see. Think about how all the covenants work together. If God's covenant with Abraham was the promise of divine blessing, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. If that promise of blessing through Abraham, sorry, his covenant was a promise of blessing, and then God's covenant with Israel through Moses was an agreement with them that they would, if they followed God's law, they would experience that promised blessing, then this covenant with David was the promise of a Davidic king. To lead them in that obedience and thus lead them into and under God's blessing. Does it make sense? Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. Abrahamic blessing, Mosaic participation and experience of the blessing, Davidic a leader to lead them into that blessing. Remember Saul. Remember that Saul was the king the people wanted, but not the king they needed, was he? They accepted to some degree, it seems like, the reality of their king deficiency because they asked for a king from God. They asked Samuel to bring that before God. But they sought to rectify their condition through worldly wisdom. What was the worldly wisdom of Israel pre-David? It was specifically this. That big and strong kings are the best kings. Big and strong kings were the best kings. That was their simplistic worldly wisdom. That's the kind of king they wanted. But David was the king they needed. David was the king they needed. He was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14. And as David sought to honor God, he led the people to honor God. And the people were then experiencing the blessings, the very blessings promised to them in the law. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Go back to verse 1 of this chapter. Look at it. Look at it. What does it say? It says that the people, David, was enjoying peace. They were, that he was enjoying peace. That means the nation was enjoying peace. Drop down to verses 10 and 11. You will get a clear sense of this very thing. That as the, as the king followed after God and was blessed, that blessing would flow down to the people. That God would provide for his people in this way. So the Davidic kings to come, the Davidic kings the nation of Israel needed were not simply those who possessed David's DNA. They were those who possessed David's heart. David's heart. But in the short term, if we think about this covenant, there's a weakness. There's a weakness to this covenant. In fact, there are two weaknesses to this covenant. Both of these weaknesses are hinted at here in the main texts. First, just as David's death was mentioned here, it was clear to the original reader that, like David, every other Davidic king would die. They would die. Now combine that with an often repeated phrase in the Old Testament, it's a phrase that spoke to this same promise that we're talking about this morning. Take a look here on the screen. I've got those verses for you. 1 Kings 2.4, 8.25 and 9.5, 2 Chronicles 6.16, 2 Chronicles 7.18, Jeremiah 33, verses 17, verse 18 as well, Jeremiah 35, verse 19. All of these verses put it this way. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's not a one-off. There's all the verses. <laughs> it's regular, regularly repeated. It's spelling out the very thing that we're seeing here in Second Samuel 7, this Davidic covenant. Look at how it's spelled out. David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So in light of all this, what the Davidic covenant seems to promise is a never-ending succession of kings from David's lineage. Now, the first weakness that all these kings will die, right? They're going to die. Another king comes up. Another king comes up. That one dies. Another king comes up. Now, that first weakness, it really comes into focus as a weakness in light of the second. And the second weakness touched on in our main text is clear from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14 and verse 15. Look back at those. Verses 14 and 15. God says there, I will be to him. He's talking about Solomon his offspring, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, David. So as is clear from the Old Testament story, neither David nor his descendants We're free from sin. We see it here. Just keep reading Kings. You will see it there time and time and time again. None of them were free from the iniquity mentioned here. What is God's reassurance for us? God's reassurance to David is this. The reality of their sins, the reality of your sin and your descendants' sins, the reality of those sins, those failures would not lead to the fate of Saul. God was not going to do that with David. What was Saul's fate? Saul's fate was that the kingdom was taken from him given to David and his line. That will not happen to David's. God's steadfast love will remain. Even when the Davidic kings, fast forward hundreds of years, even when the Davidic king and the people he ruled over were at their most corrupt, this promise stood firm. Let me give you a verse that highlights this beautifully. Second Chronicles 21-7, look what it says. Yet, Yahweh was not willing to destroy the house of David. Wait, hold on a minute. Well, you know it's bad if it starts, the verse starts that way, right? Because it sounds like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, they deserve to be destroyed. That, that seems to be the inevitable outcome of the verse, of where God's actions should be. That they should be destroyed. Yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. That lamp burning brightly, consistently. The flame would never, ever go out. The covenant promise declared in 2nd Samuel 7 was an amazing answer to the nation's king deficiency. An answer based on the king they needed not the king they wanted. But inasmuch as this covenant depended on kings who were sinners It must have seemed problematic. How could it not seem problematic? Even precarious. What would happen to this covenant? Read Psalm 89. When you have time, read Psalm 89. And you will hear the doubt of the psalmist. The anguish of the psalmist. Saying, God, but you said... But you said about David What do my eyes see? What are we experiencing now? Where are you, God? You'll, you'll feel it there when you read that psalm in light of this promise. Inasmuch as this covenant depended on kings who were sinners, it must have seemed problematic. But critically When you continue through the Old Testament and you arrive at the prophets of God, the writing prophets. When the Old Testament writing prophets spoke to God's people of God's future work among them, a work of restoration, a work of transformation, those prophets would often paint with the colors of the Davidic covenant. For example, look at this, Jeremiah 23 verse 5, Behold the days are coming declares Yahweh when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Hallelujah. That must have thrilled the hearts of those who were listening. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. That wasn't a promise that David would be raised from the grave. That's not what it's saying. It was the promise of a Davidic king who would truly be like his ancestor. Would be like his ancestor. That is, a king the people needed. Of course, when we arrive finally in the New Testament, the very first chapter of the New Testament, the very first chapter and the earliest of all stories, all of them reflect the light of that covenant lamp. I wasn't kidding about how foundational this is. This is everything. If you brush past this in your Bible reading, going through the readings and you brush past it, you go back and read it again. Don't treat it lightly. Don't brush past it. Second Samuel chapter 7. Because in the opening stories and the opening the very first chapter of the New Testament, we see this and what's reflected this light of the covenant lamp is reflected in a way far bigger and far better than probably anyone could even imagine. Look at Matthew 1 verses 20 through 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Oh, but it gets even clearer. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And the angel, another angel, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. (laughs) There it is. There it is, brothers and sisters. The two weaknesses of the Davidic covenant. Again, since that promise seemed to depend on kings who were sinners, these two weaknesses were answered powerfully and perfectly in Jesus Christ, the son of David. He was and he is both a never sinning king and a never dying again king. That's the king that we need a never-sinning king and a never-dying-again king, moral and immortal, spotless and resurrected. There is no forever succession of David Davidic kings, is there? We were wrong about that. Instead, there is gloriously one forever king from David's line. And thus the promise is fulfilled. And thus, the people of God are led into and under God's blessing to Abraham in the fullest way. What can you say but hallelujah? Are you astounded? Do you see the storyline of the Bible? Do you see the way it threads through and it hits us right between the eyes with the awesomeness of God, the greatness of God, the power of God working in time and space throughout history through broken people like us to accomplish His glorious purposes, His redemptive plan? Therefore, in light of all of this, we can say this about God's gracious treatment for every one of us. Take a look. This is your takeaway. God has treated your king deficiency with the perfect king's sufficiency. He has treated that king deficiency with the the perfect king, Jesus Christ, and his sufficiency. Every day, you know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. You know this. Every day, you and I are tempted to do what is right in our own eyes, to set ourselves up as judge, jury, and executioner. Right To set ourselves up as the master of my fates. In fact, the culture around me is routinely encouraging me to do this very thing. Speak your truth, brother. I don't know what you mean, but there's there's the truth. Not my truth. Either if I'm speaking my truth, then it has to be judged. It has to be compared. It has to be brought against the truth to see if it's it's worth anything. Just because I feel something or think something doesn't make it so. Doesn't make it real. There is a truth. That's the difference between what's called subjective experience and an objective reality. Subjective, objective. We are brought by God's Word to this reality that though the culture is telling us, you do what is right in your own eyes, follow your heart, do what's good for you, God's Word is saying, no, that's is not a mark or pathway to freedom. That is evidence of your king deficiency. So whether in your present condition or as a mark of your old self, a characteristic of that old self that you battle with still, this in-your-own-eyes mindset is a symptom of our rebelliousness, our rebellion and our lostness, But make no mistake, make no mistake, that condition does not always look like moral relativism or anarchy, right? It's often kind of painted that way in the extreme. Oh, you're doing what's right in your own eyes. Oh, it's anarchy, moral relativism. The world's going crazy. It's going to burn and fall out of its orbit and crash into the sun. It can also look like this. It can also look like it did in those pre-David Israelites that we read about in first Samuel. Remember what they did? They allowed worldly wisdom to inform their desire for a king. That's what they did. So we can do the same thing. We can be looking to thought leaders or political leaders. We could be looking to ministry leaders even, but we're looking at them through our own eyes. We're setting ourselves up and saying, yes, yes, you'll do. Because you fit with what I want. You, I'm comfortable. You're scratching my itching ears and so I'll listen to you. To have, in fact, we can even see Jesus in our own eyes, can't we? We can bring that same vision to Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean we can live as if He existed for us rather than us for Him. As if He serves our ambitions rather than we under His reign as Lord, as King. Brothers and sisters, friends, the good news of the Bible is not simply that a perfect King came to lead us. It's first this that a perfect king allowed himself to be led up to a cross where he was humiliated for our corruption. The king, David's son, who should have been honored above every other person in this world, was dishonored horribly, Dishonored in a way that no other person in this world ever has been or will be. And he did that for us, for you. For your king deficiency. That's the good news. That's the good news. To have a king deficiency means our greatest need is not for just any king but for the king that we need most. For the king that only God can provide. For the king that we were created to serve. And that is exactly who God has given us. Think about this. Here's another beautiful kind of full story, interwoven reality. We're told that Israel, back in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're told that they were rejecting When they asked for a king, they were actually rejecting God as their king. They were rejecting him when they clamored for a human king. But God used that very request in the end to bring us back to himself. And how did he do that? Because the perfect human king who was brought by God was also God himself. The perfect divine king. (laughs) God's like, oh, you thought you had me there, right? Asking for a human king? Guess what? I just turned it around on you guys. I just used your very request to bring you back to where you should have been all along, worshiping me, serving me. The perfect human king and the perfect divine king are one and the same, Jesus Christ and because that perfect king's sufficiently sorry because that perfect king's sufficiency perfectly meets our deficiency we can pray with words of this we can pray the same words or the same in the same spirit as this puritan prayer i love it listen to this we sing it we've sung it before occupy the throne of my heart Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Wow. That's a prayer of submission under a king, isn't it? Beautiful prayer of submission. So I ask you this morning, will you admit to your king deficiency or at least to struggling with that mindset. If you do, if you admit to that, I think that you will daily cry out, Lord Jesus, you are my king. Jesus Christ, you are my king. I don't need my own eyes. I need you to lead me. I need you to lead me, so let me follow you in faith and love. You see, we should be convicted. In the the words of Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do what I say? I think if you're honest, we all know that he's speaking to us there, isn't he? We call him Lord, and yet we don't do what he says. We don't actually follow him. We don't take seriously his words in the way that we should. Why should we take them seriously? They are the words of the king. Is he your king? That's God's question to you this morning. And if he is, follow him, pray to him seek through the power and the grace that he offers because he was led up that hill to that cross for you. New life is possible because he rose again from the dead fulfilling every ancient promise. There is hope for today in light of this ancient promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? An ancient promise made to one man long ago is what gives us life and hope this very day. Let's give thanks to God for that truth. Would you pray with me?